0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Let's read uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. Our Father, holy is your name. You are God alone, and there is no one that is like you. You are immortal. You dwell in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen you or can see you. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you are the God of the church bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, in, in your great kindness, you have called us to be your own. And because of your sacrificial choice to send the Messiah to be the suffering servant, you are both the just one and the justifier for those who have, uh, who have faith in you, in Jesus Christ. Your character and your track record over the years cause us to marvel at your sheer greatness. And yet, we wander. We confess that this is nothing short of idolatry and utter foolishness. So, as we approach your text this morning, show us a fresh of your greatness, and our need to hear your word. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This text is a famous one. It's not a new one probably to most of us. Uh, You've heard it before. Moms and dads, listen up. Um, It is time that we carefully considered our instruction and our love and our teaching of our children. But you know that. This is not new. You've heard this. You already know that. You know Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know the call of Christian, to the Christian parents in general to teach their children in the way of righteousness. But today, I'd like for us to take a minute and step back and look at the background to this, this, this nice little thing that we always pluck out of this passage and use and go to. When you hear the text Deuteronomy 6, I'm sure it prepares you and you get ready to know, you've, you've heard this before, so it's not a new thing. And encourage this is not a bad thing, but we can jump right to the fact that this is about maybe doing better and more family devotions. Uh, this is not about this. To encourage such a thing is wonderful. Family worship is needful. It's wonderful. It gives us the word continually to, to transform us. And it is wonderful, but it's n- not an end in itself. It is rather a means to an end. It is getting somewhere else. It's going to something larger much more important than the time that we spend just around maybe our table, which is wonderful again. I'll get right to the point. Today we want to look at what the Bible says about our own idolatrous tendencies and the proneness of our own hearts to wander from Him and for our own love for Him to stray. I want to draw our attention to Moses and his commentary on our likely fate if we will not listen to the Word of God and what will happen. And I want us to see and hear from the Holy Spirit what we are to do about that. So, on October 30th, 2016, Ed Gilmore was taken quickly by sickness, passed away at the age of 67. He had a good life, but for many it was too short. Those who loved him, it was far too short. 67. On December 2nd, 2011, the earthly life of Christopher John Kerr ended. He was a good father, a generous friend, had a personality that was often larger than life. He was a good person who taught me much, but most importantly, probably to give generously. On October 31st, 1997, J. George Mahan Lowndes courageously finished his earthly course. He faithfully led and provided for his family, regardless of his physical abilities. His body was racked with polio as a young man. I never knew him outside of a wheelchair or crutches, but he never was less of a grandfather to me and never stopped him from doing those things which are to be grandfatherly. He finished his course well. These three men that I just spoke of have been a part of my life in varying degrees, The first, Ed Gilmore, died two weeks ago, my uncle. Um, The second, Christopher John Kerr, is my mom's dad, my grandfather. George Mahan Lowndes, my dad's father, my grandfather. Put those things together, a little trivia. Christopher George Lowndes, that's my name. My two grandfathers together, that's how I got my name. All of them have passed away now. And as I was going last week, last Saturday, I was headed up to Pennsylvania for this funeral, to celebrate the life of Ed Gilmore and to, uh, and to recount that, I began thinking back and remembering about the many times that I have lost different people in my life, for good or for bad, some too early, some at a time that was best for them, and we're glad that they were entered into the, the presence of Christ. But I started to remember and think about those lives. And as I heard the, the funeral um, ceremony going on, there were times where... St- Guests would step up, either friends or family, and they would recount some sort of testimony or some sort of story about Ed as he passed away or when, during his earlier life to remember those things. And as I sat there, I, I remembered when both of my grandfathers died, I thought to myself, I need to write some of these things down, some of the stories that I so much enjoyed living out with them. And uh, I had every intention of doing that. And maybe I'd, we'd read them at family gatherings, or an opportunity to bring honor and, to those and remember those who have gone before. To my own shame, perhaps I I got busy and I never ended up doing it. Um, and consequently, we we rarely talk about them. Not as though it's something that we don't care about. We certainly do. We often forget. We forget what's what's happened in the past. This act of remembering, again, uh, if, I had, if we were to ask some of my younger cousins or my children about these men, they would have very little, if, if anything, to say at all about them. They don't know. They have no idea what happened to them. I remember so many different things about my grandfathers. My, my grandfather, Pa Kerr, I can remember when they built a two-car garage on the side of their house. I never once saw a car in that garage. It was a huge woodworking shop that he had created. And I think he had a good intention at the beginning to have like that on one side and like to keep his truck or car in there. Never happened. That was always filled with wood, um, with his dust collection system, with his paint bay, and all the different things that he used to be a woodworker. My grandfather, George Lowndes, I can remember sitting back on the back porch together under a maple tree this giant rope that I pulled out of his garage, something like, I don't know, ridiculous, 300 foot long, and it was huge, huge rope that he'd pulled out of after he got out of the Navy or something like that. And he had sat there, not so patiently, and taught me three different knots that I'd never known before. I can see him fumbling now because his hand was, he had to get a, a, a tenon tightened here, and his hand would never t- move out of this position. And I can remember him showing me this knot over and over, and he would say, no, not that way, do it this way over and over again. My children have no idea about these stories. They don't know any of these things about George Lowndes. They just know he was my grandfather. They don't know who Christopher John Kerr is. They met him when they were just little ones, but that's about it. There's so many good memories that we need to remember and want to, but often we just don't remind ourselves. We just celebrate on Friday Veterans Day. And to those who have served and do serve, thank you don't take this lightly. Um, we know that we, you give your, your time, your energy, and much of your life for the, 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 you know, the securities and freedoms that we have as a country, as a nation. So we're thankful. Veterans Day, formerly known as Armistice Day, um, is a memorial to those who have served and have gone before. They, uh, we believe that it's, what they did is so important that we will set aside an entire day to celebrate and remember. I mean, we have like parades for, for, for vets. They get free pancakes at IHOP. I mean, they have mattress sales. I mean, how else can you be honored, you know, for <laughs> Veterans Day? My point is that we set aside that time because it's important so that we remind ourselves of the things that should be rememberable, the things are worth mem- re- remembering. We have memorials, we have statues. statues, excuse me, and sometimes we've had books or movies written or, or produced about different people throughout history, the, probably the famous ones more or less, but there's so much of history that slips through the cracks that we don't see simply because it doesn't get retold. Um, if, the fa- if the act of knowing these men, specifically like in this discussion, my grandfathers, if it's important enough to me, I have to at least talk about them to my family it is up to me to tell my kids, Afton, Ian, Hudson, and Evelyn, to, I have to tell them about these men if they're ever going to know about them. Or they're going to have to go out somehow and figure out someone else who knew them so that they can retell and recollect those things and bring them back so that they might know them. The act of remembering, then, is actually a discipline. It's something we have to do actively. Um, you know, it's, it's not something that just comes. We live so vigorously in the present and prepare for the future that the past is good and we want to make sure we remember it, but often it's just so easy not to remember it. There's a great propensity for humans to do that. Knowing who you are and where you come from is not automatic, especially when we're talking about the next generation that is coming into their own. And for the sake of clarity, let me say this morning, we're not here this morning to discuss the merits of remembering our spiritual forefathers. It's not what I'm talking about here today. We're not here to talk about people in church history or Moses or Abraham. That's not what we're here to do today. What I want to draw your attention to, rather, is the act of remembering. The act of that it takes ourselves actual physical discipline, sometimes us to get aside and write it on the calendar or do something or say it out loud to actually remember something, because we are very easily prone to wander and forget. Before we jump right into this, uh, the text here though, um, because that's where we really want to go, I want to make sure that we don't jump to just three verses and that we're done with it. We just explore those. If you remember, if you've been here for any time, in the last few times, uh, Stacy said it and I've said it in a course seminar we've talked about, if we're ignoring context, we're in big trouble. Probably remember this little thing that Stacy put up here, a text without a context becomes a pretext for whatever you want. In other words, if, if, that, if that doesn't make sense, it is irresponsible for anyone to come to a passage of Scripture, to pluck out some of the words, that would be a text, to ignore the rest of the words around it, that would be the context, and then to make it into a governing rule to support whatever that you are trying to talk about. That's called a pretext, to do whatever you want with. We've watched men throughout history do this, and it's been used for all types of different things that are ungodly. We cannot ignore the, the context. So let me explain, to begin with, the occasion of Deuteronomy. If you've never read the book of Deuteronomy, let me give you a brief summary and help us understand the occasion of where we're going. Israel had wandered in, in, the, uh, in the desert for 40 years. Um, they are preparing now to cross the Jordan River into what we are calling the promised land, the one that Yahweh would give to them. A whole generation had passed. Most of them that were alive during the Egyptian flight or the exodus leaving from Egypt are now dead. Most likely the people that are there were either maybe children in, at, at Egypt when they left or they didn't know anything about Egypt. They just knew the desert. So this is an entirely new generation. And as a group, as, and as this group prepares to enter the promised land, Moses speaks to them like a father, like a pastor. Because remember, If you remember anything about that time in the desert, Moses disobeyed and he would not be allowed to go into the promised land. And so as they stand foot on the banks of the Jordan River, as they prepare to go across and to go into this new land, he is going to stand before them and tell them these things. Again, like a father or a pastor to say, listen, you've got to know this stuff before you go. I won't be with you. There'll be new leadership, We know what happens. Joshua takes over. And and well, he does a great job. But this is his last opportunity to get with them and to make sure that they understand what's most important as they go into this. Their identity, who they are, where they're going, and what they're supposed to do. So, he needs to relay to them who they are, where they came from, and what they're to do. Now, Genesis, they have Genesis, they know this, had already given them their origin story, right? From creation all the way to the calling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Exodus explained how they went from a family to a nation, all the way down from Joseph's little family and Jacob, all the way to a huge nation who overwhelmed the Egyptians. Leviticus outlined how to properly interact with Yahweh and what was required. Numbers provides instruction for God's people moving from covenant to conquest, conquest of the promised land. But now, as they stood at the banks of Jordan River, they were about to walk into the new stage of history they are about to move into a time of great prosperity and riches, independence. To put it simply, they are headed into temptation. Now, when we think about temptation and trials, we normally think of, you know, this is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. We're going to be oppressed. And this is going to be difficult for everyone involved. This is exactly the opposite. It's a different type of trial and temptation. Instead of, pain and suffering and anguish. Instead, this is a time that was potentially full of success and conquest, a time when all their material dreams would come true. I mean, the way that the author explains the land, if you remember, it's oozing with milk and honey, rich, fertile soil. The land is ready to give up fruits and vegetables and grains it's perfect for grazing. It's great for all these different things full of food and luxury for the people of Israel. It's not simply now he realizes this, but he is prepared for this. Moses is coming to tell them and sit them down and say, I must tell you the covenant. And this is not to say, here's the law, let me read out all the laws that we talked about before. All right, here's your papers. Go, go into the law now, but into the land now. Rather, what he is doing is much more like a pastor saying, but these are the implications of that law. I know that you know this. You've probably seen it or heard it. You remember heard someone talking about it. But let me reiterate to you how important this is and what it means for you as a people. You are this people in covenant relationship with God. And this is what it means to be that type of a person, that type of a people, a community. You must act this way then. And so this is what he's doing. The book of Deuteronomy then clearly brings together the covenant between God, the sovereign king, and the people that he chooses to be in covenant relationship with him. Now we're talking about when God chose the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants thereafter. He is promising these things to them. And this covenant comes with a contract, as it were. And it comes with obligations. Make no mistake about it. The king is offering up much, but it is a covenant relationship. It is both ways. So, God is the gracious king like we said. He has called them to this relationship in Abraham. He rescued them from distress in Egypt. He provided for them in the wilderness. Remember the manna that falls from heaven? He provides for them, and he leads them to this wonderful gift of the promised land. Moses is calling the people of Israel to respond to this God in utter loyalty and obedience. Love through acts of obedience. Specifically, Moses wants them to remember the nature of their relationship with God. They've got to know who they are. He knows that what lies before them, great success, and with that, temptation to wander. He knows that what Israel really needs is God and God alone, not the stuff that the land can give to them. He knows that they will struggle with pride, apathy, and idolatry, especially when they see all of their material needs perfectly met. They have no need for God anymore. This is the occasion in the background of Deuteronomy. In the first four books, he kind of explains where the nation has come from, where they have been together, him as the leader, Moses leading them out of Egypt through the desert to this point now. By chapter 5, we have the f- one of the retellings of the Ten Commandments. And by the end of chapter 5, we see the occasion there, the people are afraid and they're they are trembling before God because, if you remember, the mountain shakes and there's clouds, dark clouds, and they see the great power of Yahweh, and they are afraid, and they cry out to God asking him to make sure that Moses would be their mediator because they are not fit to stand before him, and they do not want to die. God graciously, graciously allows it. He allows Moses to be the mediator, and he gives them the law through him. And at this point in the text, we enter chapter six. But before we get into chapter six, I'd actually like you to turn two chapters over to chapter 8. We are going to kind of uh, reverse engineer this thing. Uh, We are going to look from 8, and we're going to work back. Moses is going to give us an important warning here. Like I stated earlier, he knows the propensity of human heart to desire glory, credit, independence, and self-sufficiency. And he knows this because, well, (laughs) it's happened before already. They've already been prone to wander. And they've already done things that are against what God has told them to do. So, get your Bibles out. We're going to go for this again. Chapter 8, we're going to read the whole thing together. If you have a pen or a pencil, I'd like you to do something. Look for the word remember. Look for the word forget. All right? Pay attention. I want you also to do one more thing. Look at the relationship between the keeping of commandments and remembering how God and how Moses, excuse me, talks about this here. Look at this, how the relationship between remembering and keeping the commandments work. All right, here we go. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you, should keep, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let, your, let you hunger, and then He fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did, he, did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord... "'Your God disciplines you. "'So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God "'by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. "'For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, "'a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, "'flowing in the valleys and hills, "'a land of wheat and barley, "'of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, "'a land of olive trees and honey, "'a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity.'" in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, Who brought you water out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good, to to, to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. For sake of time... Circling, should be five things he probably circled. I think there are two uh, remembers and three forgets and plenty of keeping commandments and obedience. We see over and over and over again, Moses is warning them, do not forget the way of the Lord. Do not forget your relationship with Him. Do not not obey the commandments. In other words, obey the commandments. First question then, what specific commandments are we talking about here? What is he referring to? I think at least naturally we can say he started this discussion in chapter 5, and now we're in chapter 8, so 5, 6, and 7, we can at least say that those are the things that we should be following. I would probably extend it even larger to say that the law and the commandments in general, the entire law, is what they are to keep as well. And so, if they're breaking and forgetting these things and forgetting them, the God who they, is their God, they are breaking them. So, um, the second question then is, Chris, are you going to now proceed to tell us the entire law then? And at twelve o'clock, I am not going to do that. Instead, we want to look what, at what Jesus thought was most important about this passage. And that's not just a cop out. If we look at Mark twelve, remember this: the scribe comes to talk to Jesus. And he says, what's the most important commandment? I want to know. What is Jesus' response? Let me read it. Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And then in Matthew's gospel, we find out that all the law and the prophets, in other words, all of Scripture, depend on this and the command to love one's neighbor. They all hang on this command. In other words, if you don't get this one right, you don't get any of it right. If we don't understand this as the foundational piece, peace and we don't obey this, we don't obey any of it. And so, let us turn the two pages back or two chapters back and look at chapter six. The first words, hear, O Israel, blatantly require obedience. This is uh, covenantal language. Hear, O Israel, means not it it's not like the option. You can hear it and you can obey it if you want to. No, like, hear Israel means hear and obey. As if you didn't obey, then you didn't even hear it. You didn't hear me rightly because I'm God and I'm telling you this. So Hero Israel, listen up. This covenant language, again, is coming through. And in, in verse 4, Moses is helping the Israelites answer the question, who is your God? It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses is not trying to answer the question, how many is your God? That's not what he's doing here. The, the, the word that is used here can also be used for alone. The word for one can also be translated as alone. And again, there's certainly credit and, and, and uh, good things to understand about the unity of who God is. In the Trinity, there's one. There's one God. There's one God. But for our purposes and what Moses is trying to do here, there are no other gods. He is God alone. He is Yahweh and Yahweh alone. That's what he's pointing out here. Not telling how many, but rather, this is your God and your God alone. There are no others. This truth demands obedient action. So oftentimes, I remember coming to this text and I was thinking to myself, why is this supposed to be a command, right? Why does he ask... Give us the greatest command. And the first part that Jesus actually says is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That just sounds to me like a good fact to know. That, right? He's the, he's the only God. But if we know anything to be true about what we believe in theology, it always demands action. Always. This is no different. Thus, if you do not believe this, you are disobeying. And if it doesn't work out to be a life that obeys, you don't believe and you are disobeying this command. So, This is that part. You probably already know some of the natural reactions and actions that would come out of such a command. And you say, really, I know these? Yes. If God is God alone, we probably can't have any other gods before Him or at all. If God is God alone, we probably shouldn't have anything other than God that would receive our worship like an idol. For these people, like a graven image. Like, we probably shouldn't have any graven images or idols. We probably, if God is God alone, we probably shouldn't use a supreme deity's name in a way that is empty or disrespectful. In other words, taking his name, if this is the God of the universe, taking it in an empty way, in vain, uttering his name in a way that doesn't care about who he is or the fact that you're referencing the God of the universe. You see where I'm going with this? These are the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. Now, they all come back to say, Yahweh is our God, God alone. There is no other. Remember it. Obey. Then we move on to the next part of verse 5, right? You shall love the Lord your God. This is the part we all know and have memorized. You shall love the Lord your God. Let me get right to it. Moses is not saying... You need to have, uh, you know, commanding the people to be emotionally drawn. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all in mind. He's not talking about some sort of feeling that we have to conjure up for this supreme being, this deity. Moses is calling, rather, Israel to their legal obligations to God. Remember, this is covenant language. Now, that doesn't exclude the fact that what we get from a relationship with God is full of joy, and It's emotional. But that is not what he's calling us to. What he's calling us to is to love and the fact that he is completely committed and loyal to this person, the only one true God, Yahweh. As the marriage phrase says, forsaking all others. That's a covenant relationship. Do you understand? Like This is like a, just the same thing. We're loving, completely committed, 100% loyal to this person alone. Will there be emotional you know, and, and joyous bonds? Uh, absolutely. We just heard all this stuff about how the land is flowing with milk and honey, and he's going to give them wheat and barley and figs and oil and gold and everything that, they, that their heart's desire. Of course. And it will engender a relationship with him that is wonderful and full of joy. But again, the covenant here is the idea of loyalty to that one alone. What is the extent of this love? Look at the rest of verse 5 with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. For the sake of time, the simple interpretation here, this relationship, this covenant relationship, demands love for God with one's entire being, all of yourself. Nothing is left out. You see, the command is actually rather simple. The command is, be true to me as your only God and commit your whole self to me in every way. I say it again, be true to me as your only God and commit your whole self to me in every way. Simple, right? I mean, yes, it is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy (laughs) or perhaps impossible. But let me continue. He's just given this command. Remember, this is a group of people who are ready to go over this, this river they're going to lose their old leader. They're going to get a new one. It's a new situation. And they're supposed to do something about this verse, this, this command that they're given. Look at the next verse, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is much more than just like a list of known rules or like a club pledge that needs to be said once a year. Rather, it's not like something, again, like the sheet that I give you and say, Here are your rules. It's to be on your heart, to be a part of our memory, to be part of who we are. It should become so familiar, it's a part of our thinking. And so these people ought to know it so well that they are talking about it in their sleep. But how in the world is this to be done? It's a command. How is this supposed to be done? How we to keep this in front of us and remember it and have it on our hearts? How will God's command be that way? Let's read on. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This was the aha moment for me. <laughs> i had always come to this text, and I'm just telling it myself here, I like the great Shaman, like I get the hero Israel, and I get all this stuff but I immediately would jump to this first section, teach them diligently to your children, ignoring the context of what's going on here. Remember the context. Moses is delivering the command to Israel to believe that Yahweh is God alone and that each person is to love Him with everything they have and that they are to have this command on their hearts. How in the world is to do this? I don't think it's a big stretch to say, He's gonna tell you how to do this. These are some practical things. The next set of commands is not new stuff. It's not a different command. It follows that what is being stated here is a continuation of how God's people are to have this command on their hearts. Look at the whole. Teach these commands diligently to your children. In other words, in other words, write them on the minds of your children. Now, eventually, we really don't want, we want to make a jump from here to here. We want that change. But at the very least, write them on the minds of your children so that they know them, diligently teaching them. Talk of these commands when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. Basically, all the time, talk about them. So they are ringing in your ears, and it's just going back and forth in your head continually. The third thing, bind these words on your hand, between your eyes. Now, something that you've probably seen before is something like this. This is called a phylactery. This is binding as a front lip between your eyes. This is a little leather box full of Scripture. This is what the Jews have taken it to be. This boy is putting on a binding. This is the same thing on his arm. He's binding it. There's a little on his, on his uh, bicep here. You can see a little, a little square box full of Scriptures. They've taken it to this degree, saying, this is what we will do. We will put it on there. The point here, continue, let me, let me read the rest of it. Writing these commands on the doorposts or on the gates Remember it when you're in your house, even when you're out in your pastures, even on the gates, put it there. The point is to put it everywhere, even on people, your children. These instructions are practical ways to help the people of God remember and to ingrain these commands on their hearts. There isn't anything inherently holy about the act of talking about commandments. There isn't anything inherently holy about, you know, um, having it written on a part of your doorframe at your house. There isn't anything inherently holy about wearing these, these leather boxes on your arms or on your forehead. There's nothing inherently holy about them at all. Rather, Moses is making the point that the one who takes this command seriously will practically surround himself with reminders of this covenant relationship and its obligations that go along with it. Moses is helping the people remember. And we've come so... Full circle. And today we began at Deuteronomy 8 on purpose, seeing the warnings against forgetting these commandments. And now as we finish looking at this short passage in in, in chapter 6, we realize that from the beginning, from the beginning Moses instructed God's people in this area. He didn't just leave them out there with the command. He gave commandments that would help them remember God's commandments. That's how much he knew that it it was going to be an issue. So up front, he's telling them, put these things in the way so that you might not forget the relationship with the Lord your God. We may not be Jews today. We may not be per se the nation of Israel, but the challenge is no different for us as people of God. We are called by Jesus to understand and know and believe the first and great commandment. He's the one that said it back in Mark 12, it's through the Gospels in, in many areas. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It is just as important for us today, us as Christians, as it was for the people when Moses was speaking to them at the Jordan River. We are called to be faithful to Jesus Christ alone as our only God and to commit our whole selves to Him in every way. Is this new for us? Of course not. We, saw, we see it all over the New Testament. We see Jesus talking about it. We see what the disciples talking about. It. We've seen it all over Paul's literature. We even see it in Revelation. You've, lost, you've left your first love. First John, we see it there. We see it in so many areas that we are to love and commit ourselves 100% to Him, to Him alone and never to be serving God and whatever else it is, money, this world, our possessions, none of those things. So this passage, and I'll wrap it up, is much more than about us knowing, know God and love Him and make sure you teach your children. Don't forget this whole thing, that these are ways for us to remember. It's much more than about these Jewish men putting these things on their foreheads and on their arms it's much so reminding us that we are prone to wander. We are full of idolatry and chase after things that are not God-centered and does not have him at the, f- at the front and the middle of the throne. So today, we, we ask that the Holy Spirit would call us through this command, through this word, that we would remind ourselves, and we would remember, and we would make things in our lives to help us remember. That may mean family devotions. That may mean reading your Bible in the morning throughout the day. Putting little verse cards, that's great. That's why we want the kids going back there and working on memory verses. That's why you should be working on memory verses, so that we're constantly having it pound around inside of our head, so that we might be changed. The Holy Spirit can use that word to change us. By the way, it's a command. So let us remember what we have, not as though it's just, oh yeah, we're thankful for this gift, like Thanksgiving sometimes we pay that lip service to it, but rather remember the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ because of his shed blood on the cross, our relationship that we have with the Trinity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you would work in our hearts to believe Lord, give us this truth and help us to depend on you in faith that we might believe and that we might not set up our own things and our own idols, but rather, Lord, that you would be our God alone and that we would see you as the only God, the only one, and we would commit our whole selves to you in every way. We ask for your work in us in Jesus' name.